When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I am not as enthusiastic as my introduction would suggest, but I'm putting on a good face because we've got to talk about the USA's 2-0 loss to Canada. And when I say we, I mean myself, and I mean Mr. Joe Lowry, a man who always gets three points when he goes to Canada. Joe Lowry, thank you for joining me this evening. That's right, Taylor. I'm all about those three points when it's freezing <laughs> in Canada and I'm playing on artificial turf. Yeah. We're back, baby. We're back. This this conversation, I don't imagine, will be as fun as the El Salvador conversation oh, was. No? And to be honest, that one wasn't all that fun either. It really wasn't. Um, I'm not sure we're off to the best start here, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure we are either, Joe. But, but we neither were was this the US, evening, so yeah, you know, this is true. And we were off to a good start this evening when we did our, our live show for uh, for BR. We did the pregame. We talked about lineups. We talked about approach. We disagreed on approach, specifically Canada's approach. You thought they would be more aggressive. I thought they would be more defensive. As usual, Joe was correct. Canada with a two-no win over the United States. A seventh minute goal from Kyle Laren making most of the difference, and then an insurance goal from uh, Atacugbe at the very, very end, I think in the 90-plus fifth minute, secures the win, secures all three points, secures a lot of anger on Twitter. But Joe, we did the pregame show, we watched the game, we did the postgame show, we have rewatched it again, now here we are. The age-old question to begin, uh, having done all of that, are you? was this more or less or as frustrating to watch the second time round? It was more frustrating. It was more frustrating because the second time you watch, especially when you watch a game that you know has no goals coming from the U.S. men's national team, it's it's harder to get your heart in it, right? The hope isn't there anymore, and I, I certainly didn't have any hope watching this game back through the second time. It was also more frustrating because our primary objective watching this back again was to figure out, okay, well, we know the U.S. doesn't score. We know they create almost nothing in this game. Why is that? Like, what's going on here? What is the issue? What's the disconnect? And we both came out of this, I believe, Taylor, correct me if I'm wrong, with a laundry list of things that went wrong for the U.S. in the attack, the things that led to making this such a frustrating game. Not El Salvador frustrating, like, oh, you know, it would have been cool if we would have scored more goals, but but Canada away frustrating where it's like, actually, we we weren't really close to scoring any goals at, at pretty much any point in time outside of set pieces and a bicycle kick from Paul Ari- a, a set hmm. piece I should say and a bicycle kick from Paul Ariola it was grim in the attack Taylor not grim everywhere but but very grim in the attack Yes, and, and certainly so for the United States. For Canada, less so. A very good result. All three points, they remain uh, top of the qualifying table. John Herdman, uh, in his post-match comments, kind of using this as a rallying cry to get anybody who is considering playing for someone else to play for Canada because this is what they can do, and I think justifiably so, because here they sit, top of the table, and this was, despite not having uh, dominant possession or shots or anything like that, this was a really convincing win for Canada because I'm with you, Joe, watching it again, 
the, if that goal doesn't happen in the seventh minute, and we'll talk about that, we'll talk about uh, alternate realities, but if that goal doesn't happen, it's a very, very different game. But because it does, it changes the face of this one, but it allows Canada to, I think, play exactly as they wanted to and in some ways control the game by letting the U.S. have more of the ball, but just letting them have it in less threatening positions. And I think this was a comprehensively good performance from Canada, even if the stats don't back that up. I think they executed their game plan perfectly, uh, exemplified by a 2-0 win. I'm going to hit back at that slightly. Too. Right. I, don't, I don't disagree that Canada played well. I think their game plan was very visible from the start. They adapted it a little bit after they go up 1-0 in the seventh minute. I think they become more defensive, but still aggressive. And they, they found that balance quite well throughout this match. But when you look at the numbers, and even think about this game as we watched it not once but twice, Canada didn't pose all that much threat to the United States. And, and the goal throws a huge wrinkle into all of this. I'm, I'm happy to admit that. But Canada didn't threaten for all the attacking firepower they have. Do they have Alfonso Davies? No. No, he's not involved in this group. But Tejon Buchanan, Jonathan David, and Kyle Lahren, you can make every single argument that those were the three best attacking players on the field. I think I fall into that camp, given the form that Christian Pulisic is in right now and the rest of the U.S. attacking players. I think those three Canadians were the best attacking players on the field. They didn't threaten the U.S. all that much, Taylor. There was the goal, which comes off of a sequence of U.S. mistakes. There's a a bit of danger around the 30th minute and a couple moments in the second half. And then that garbage time goal, which I don't think we should really count in this conversation. Not that it wasn't important to this game. It wasn't all that important, but it will be important for goal difference. Canada didn't do all that much with the ball. The difference, and and this is where that goal from Laren makes all the difference in this game, is they didn't have to, Taylor. This was, to me, a 50-50 kind of game. If you play this game 100 times, I bet you see a lot of draws if you play it out over all of those times. The U.S. defended well for the vast majority of this game. They didn't create much. Canada defended well for the vast majority of this game. They didn't create much of anything either. The difference is Canada scores that early goal, and that takes the pressure off them. They don't need to take a ton of risks risks to get those three points at home that that they wanted from this game. They don't need to be super adventurous. They had the three points. They just had to hold on to them. And that's exactly what they did. So that's that's mm-hmm. the challenge in this game. Canada, I think, did play better than the United States. I'm not trying to quibble with that, especially when you consider game state. The pressure was on the U.S. to do something. The U.S. couldn't. But I still fall into the camp. If you look at the XG and you think about how this game was played and the lack of danger that Canada really posed, even with all of those strong attacking players... I do sort of understand where Greg Baralter is coming from when he says, you know, all of his really positive post-match comments about, you know, this was a good performance and Mm -hmm. we've never been this dominant without getting a result. I don't agree with all of that. And I think he's definitely way too strong on that camp. But I think part of what he's saying is borne out in the film of this game. Let's keep going with Canada then for a moment. Then we'll talk about what the U.S. did. But I I agree with you for the most part, Joe. And I think the the difference in what we're saying, I'm not I'm not really disagreeing with anything you're saying. What I'm looking at is, especially in the second half, the times that Canada would get the ball, either they would win it back, or they would play their way through, or they would hit the U.S. on the counter. It felt like in those moments, the U.S. really was just kind of flying through the air. And I was struck on the rewatch by how many times the U.S. would have two or three defenders around one or two Canadian players, or there would be defensively solid numbers for the U.S. and they wouldn't make a tackle or they would get bypassed by a couple quick passes. And I think what it was for me was that when Canada would try to attack, it just felt like the United States really struggled to know how to deal with that. And it put them on their heels a little bit at times. And I think sometimes like like contrasting with the El Salvador game, when El Salvador would try to break, you just had that 
confidence that the U.S. was going to be there, that they had the defenders in the position to snuff it out, to make a play. Maybe it's a professional foul. Maybe it's a slide tackle and it's a throw-in. Oftentimes, it's just winning the ball back and, and here we go again. Whereas with Canada, there were just these little runs, these little combinations, and it felt like they kept being able to alleviate pressure and play themselves out. And even if it only bought them an extra 30 seconds of possession or an extra minute or, or it advanced it 40 yards up the field and then it was a giveaway or a throw-in for the U.S., it still just kept breaking up the flow of the game. And I think it made the U.S. just that more apprehensive to commit numbers forward, to leave themselves exposed. And in the end, maybe they they throw caution to the wind and concede that second. But I think that's where I felt like Canada were truly challenging for the United States. There were those moments, Taylor. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But I feel like I could count on one hand the amount of really dangerous attacks Canada had. Yeah, that's maybe true. I, maybe I could count on two or three fingers. Maybe I mean, maybe less than that, right? There weren't that many comprehensively dangerous attacking sequences from Canada. And that's what I'm trying to get at here from the U.S. I think it's fair to compliment Canada on their performance. Man, I think of all people, I'm I'm higher on Canada than a lot of folks out there. I've spent much of my last month and around the holiday period watching every single one of their qualifiers. And they are a good team. And I cannot give John Herdman and this group of players enough credit. But I don't think they were all that dangerous with the ball today. And to be honest, though, they didn't have to be all that dangerous. So we can quibble about, you know, were they effective with the ball? Were they not? None of that ended up mattering in this game, Taylor. All of the impetus and the real focus on this game, the most important phase of play in this game, wasn't Canada's possession versus the U.S.'s defensive block. It wasn't Canada in attacking transition against the U.S. in defensive transition. It was the U.S. with the ball, either in attacking transition or in possession, against Canada's defensive block. When they went down 1-0 early on on the road, any hope they had to get points at that point was wrapped up in their ability to score a goal. And the mm-hmm. U.S. never looked dangerous. That's something I'm confident we can both agree on, and pretty much everybody who watched this game. The U.S. never looked all that dangerous with the ball. They, they almost never looked dangerous with the ball in this game. And that's the problem. I said this game's a 50-50 kind of game, and I, I stand by that. I think if you play this game, you see a lot of draws. But if you're the U.S. and if you're Greg Berhalter, you don't want to be satisfied with a 50-50 game. You want to stack the odds in your favor. You want to make it an 80-20 kind of game where you're going to win 80% of the time or, or whatever those numbers look like. The U.S. certainly didn't do that with the ball. They did not stack the odds in their favor, and they never really threatened Canada at all through 95-ish minutes. So let's talk about what the United States did, and let's start with the beginning, a good place to start. It's the usual 4-3-3, as expected. It's Matt Turner in goal. It's Chris Richards and Miles Robinson as your center backs. Serginho Dest at right back. Anthony Robinson, Jedi Robinson, excuse me, at left back. I guess that's what we have to call him now. Do we? That's what do the we? Comment- like, legitimately, I've been thinking about this, Taylor. Maybe we'll just yeah. talk about this now. I, like, don't want to. Is yeah. that, you know, I mean, is that me being a bad person? I'm not trying to be mean. I just, I, I don't get it. It's weird. It, it feels weird. It, it's, <laughs> it's that, it's that after the El Salvador game, he said, I prefer to be called Jedi that I think led to other people starting to call him that. I don't. And when Miles Robinson is starting as well, yeah, it's, it's hard true. to just say it's Robinson. True. Uh, yeah, I say call him Anthony if you want to. I'm going A-Rob. I'm going to yeah. go A-Rob Taylor. Is that cool? I feel like that's even, even cooler A-Rob than A-Rob works for me. A-Rob and M-Rob. Let's right, do that. Cool, but yeah, cool. so that's our back four, the midfield three, the MMA midfield. Field we know and love. And then up top, somewhat controversially, we had Brendan Aronson on the right. That wasn't the controversial one. Christian Pulisic on the left. That wasn't either. It was Giassi Zardes in the middle. And I would say this was a, I'm going to assume a not fun game for Giassi Zardes, just, not just because the United States loses, but because I, I feel like I am now coming around to the idea, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong. 
I feel like if Jossie Zardes is starting, it means that he's going to hustle. And he is in there not to be on the end of low crosses, not to be a fox in the box. I feel like Berhalter wants him to work. He wants him to move. He's going to be checking two. He's going to be fighting for 50-50s. He's going to be making runs in behind. Oftentimes, it felt like as a decoy or to stretch the defense. But it doesn't seem like he's getting that many opportunities to just be that poacher in the box, the one who's making things happen. The attack revolves around him. Am I off base, Joe, or does it feel like if we see Jossie Zardes in there, we can assume, all right, it's going to be a hustle performance. You're totally on base, Taylor. You're standing squarely on first base right now. (laughs) Uh, Jenny Chu, who does a lot of the sideline stuff for CBS and their broadcast crew on Paramount+, Plus, she does a really good job for them, was mentioning in her pregame hit for Paramount about how she talked with Berhalter about this this selection of Jossie Zardes over Ferreira or Pepe, and Berhalter said something to the effect of the narrow field uh, at Tim Horton's field plays to Zardes' advantage, which I think fits exactly into the description you're giving of his game. Berhalter wants Zardes to go and crash around and to be physical. He is the most physical option of any of the nines on this squad. So Berhalter mentioned the narrow field being an advantage. He talked about how Zardes is familiar with the pressing system that the U.S. runs, and oh boy, did they press today. Berhalter mentioned how he can battle for crosses in the box more than the other nines, and I think all of those things fit within the realm of what you're discussing, Taylor. I didn't have any issue with Zardes starting this game. I still don't have any issue with Zardes starting this game. He didn't dazzle. He didn't thrill when you watch him. and He rarely does, but I thought he did a lot of things well. He wasn't perfect by any stretch, but the attack around him wasn't exactly functioning at a high level either. So that Zardes, uh, that, that, that Zardes inclusion was one change to the lineup from the El Salvador game. Aronson for Wea was another. We mentioned this in the pregame BR show, but Wea had a vaccination snafu. Way was vaccinated once in France, or I don't know where that vaccination took place. He was vaccinated once, got a breakthrough COVID case, and that allows him to be fully vaccinated or considers him fully vaccinated in France. But Canada doesn't have the same guidelines. So he was not able to travel to Canada for this game. Somebody dropped the ball along the way in, in making that happen. But no way in this game. Aronson starts in his place. And then the other thing that we didn't know before the game, Taylor, but that struck us both as being odd was Miles Robinson coming in for Walker Zimmerman instead of Miles Robinson coming in for Chris Richards in the middle of the back line. After we agree Richards didn't impress all that much against El Salvador, this felt weird to me, but we learned after the game, according to Burhalter, that Zimmerman was held out as a precaution as he's dealing with a slight hamstring injury. So we don't exactly know his status headed into Wednesday's game, but he did not start today. Hopefully, for the U.S.'s sake, I think they, they will want him to go on Wednesday now that Chris Richards went down with what might be a broken foot towards the end of this game. Tyler Adams dealing with a hamstring strain, apparently. U.S. players are, are not exactly thriving in terms of injuries right now, Taylor. Agreed. I don't want to spend a ton of time in the theoretical universe. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of multiverse theoretical universe things. But I will say one of my big what-ifs from this game is what if Zimmerman were healthy? Because... One of his biggest strengths, as I've talked about previously, is is his willingness to step and battle for 50-50s and win those aerial challenges and try to put out fires before they are truly fires. And this first goal is a lot of misplaced moments from center backs, including Miles Robinson, I think, kind of ball-watching a little bit on the combination 1-2 that then plays Kyle Lahren in. Then he loses positioning. Again, we'll talk about that whole goal in great detail but I do feel like Zimmerman, we talked about this in the pregame, as being one of the the biggest misses, potentially. That feels like it was borne out a little bit over the course of this game. Uh, so it doesn't seem, though, like that aside, we had any major issues to start with this lineup. We were We were pretty excited to see what happened. Canada, I found a bit more confusing. And this, for me, is one of those games in which focusing on the formation can be in some ways a fool's errand because I saw moments when they were in a back three. I saw moments when they were in a back five. I saw plenty of moments in which they were 
in a much more conventional 4-4-2, like pressing around midfield and trying to clog the center of the pitch. And I think that they had a lot of good flexibility in the way they set up defensively, the way they crowded numbers over, but the way they never really bit on some of the things the United States was trying to do. They never let themselves get stretched. They never over-pursued when an attacker would drop into midfield or when the U.S. would try to switch from one side to the other. I felt like they always did a good job of sort of sliding over and getting numbers where they needed to be and then basically snuffing out the United States and forcing them to recycle. So I thought on the defensive side of things, Canada, a pretty excellent game plan from John Herdman and the players. A thousand times, yes, Taylor. They're so fluid. They're so flexible, this Canada team. You're exactly right to point out the fluidity in their shape, the back three, the back four. Alistair Johnson is, is in my mind, the key player there, moving from right center back to right back, depending on the, the phase of play. But you're, you're spot on there, Taylor. Canada sat in this 4-4-2 block defensively, and they shifted. They rotated. Tejan would be as a as part of the front three in possession. Then he'd shift over to the left midfield spot in that four four two. The wing backs would would shift back or step forward depending on if you're Sam Adekugbe or if you're Richie Larea on one side or the other. Alistair Johnson would pinch inside. This team has the defensive rotations down pat. Not just shifting from one shape to the other, but actually doing something effective in their more set defensive shape. In that four four two, they were in defensively with David and Laren up top. Canada excelled in this game at rotating and moving. And as the U.S. played the ball out wide, which is where they had the ball for like 90% of this game, <laughs> as the U.S. moved the ball out wide, Canada stepped the weak side wide oh, midfielder up. Man. So it's Tejon on one side and it's Richie Larea on the other. As the U.S., let's say they have the ball on, on the left side and it's Anthony Robinson. It's A-Rob it's a and, and Chris Richards on that left side. They have the ball. And if the U.S. is trying to rotate and recycle possession over to the other side, over to M-Rob's side and, and Des' side on the right for the U.S., to discourage the U.S. from being able to do that and to trap the U.S. on their left side with, with A-Rob over there, Canada would send Tejon up and just have him step up to Dest on that left side. Or maybe it's Musa dropping in. Canada's left, the U.S. is right. They would send that wide midfielder over to discourage the U.S. from actually recycling possession over to that other side. They made the U.S.'s lives really difficult when they tried to switch possession. And that resulted in there being one-minute sequences, like 60-second like sequences where the U.S. has the ball on one side of the field. Canada did a great job of discouraging those passes and pinning the U.S. to one side. And then at that point, that the, the, the benefits of that are you don't have to move defensively. You can just camp out if you're Canada on the, on the your right, the U.S.'s left side, or, or your left, you know, the, the other side, right? You don't have to do a lot of defensive movement. So credit to Canada for that. And also there's blame. There's plenty of blame to go around for the U.S. with their work on the ball. You can beat that tactic. You can still move the ball. The U.S. had plenty of their own issues that Canada didn't force. But all that to say, I, I, I think John Herman should be hugely proud of how his team played. And he and this Canada squad deserve a ton of credit for their defensive setup. All right. So we're going to talk about the first half, the second half, the changes that were made, the result where it leaves us. But first, Joe, we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back, and I feel like this could be a show that starts off sort of neutral, sort of negative, and ends up with me like uh, wanting to never watch soccer again. <laughs> so I'm going to try to reset by saying that as I tweeted at the end of the first half, I thought it was mostly a good first half from the United States. And as as was the case with El Salvador, it's a sort of like undecided, incomplete grade at halftime. Obviously, it's halftime, but also because that second half is going to determine, do we learn from things and improve or do we not learn and get worse? Against El Salvador, I would argue that we learned and improved. In this game, I would say the opposite is true. But let's focus on this first half for a second, Joe, because I'm with you. You said earlier it felt like it was kind of a 50-50 game, that if you play this game out 10 times, a lot of these are going to be draws. Maybe there's a win in there for the United States off of some flute goal. But for the most part, yeah, I think it was pretty open. I don't think either team was just hammering the other team's goal or anything like that. But I think it was sort of being played out for it to be nil-nil at halftime. But then there's just this fluke moment, this breakdown from the United States, lots of individual errors that lead to that goal. Leaving the goal aside for a second, Joe, where were you on that first half? How are you feeling about things? I was in a very similar position to you, Taylor. It felt to me like almost everything the U.S. did between the two boxes was good, right? Almost everything that happened in the the middle third of the field, maybe that's a, a good way to put it. At least, you know, if it wasn't sharp, and we've talked about the issues with the U.S.'s ball movement, and there were plenty of those in the first half, plenty in the second half too. But, but really, all the influential moments, they didn't allow many chances for Canada. They didn't create many chances on their own. There wasn't a lot happening in either one of those boxes. So I, I guess maybe a better way to say it, instead of everything between the boxes being good, was everything between the boxes was good enough. It was good enough for the U.S. to be in this game and to limit Canada's chances. The challenge, Taylor, is that they didn't fully limit Canada's chances. It is, <laughs> it is a sequence of mistakes in the seventh minute. It's a U.S. goal kick. Matt Turner is in goal. He hits the ball towards the midfield circle, and he underhits it, most importantly. There's a big gap between where the ball lands and where the forward line is prepared to receive the ball. It's underhit. Kamal Miller heads it forward. The U.S. are slow to react to that second ball. Adams and Musa are, are too static, although there's not much time for them to react either way. Jonathan Osorio gets a touch, goes up to Kyle Aaron. It's Laren to David, back to Laren again. He runs in behind the back line. Miles Robinson slips. So you've got the Turner under hit ball, a little bit of slow reaction time for the second ball, and then Miles Robinson slipping in, in the third phase here on this goal. Laren gets the ball on his right foot, and he finishes, and it's 1-0 Canada. It is a really unlikely sequences, a sequence of events happening here. That's how most goals come, Taylor. It's, it's, it's never hugely likely that you're going to score a goal. That's why we see so few of them in soccer. But Canada fully capitalized on the U.S.'s mistakes here, and that taints the first half. It taints this game. You know, the U.S. weren't entirely bad in the first half. They, they were in this game, but that, that one goal made a huge difference, Taylor. Yeah, a couple more points on that goal for a moment. Uh, yeah, I'm with you, Matt Turner, underhitting it. The way I heard it discussed at halftime was as though his center backs were like screaming for the ball and he bypassed them and just went for the long kick. I didn't see that. I saw it, no. and this happened a couple different times in the first and the second half, that he could 
play that ball short to his center backs, or he had the option to go long, and I think it was at his discretion. Here he tries to go long, but it is massively underhit, as you said. Zardes tries to make up like 25 yards, but can't get there. Uh, The only other things I wanted to spotlight, Chris Richards a little bit slow to step on the the initial opportunity, and then because of that is out of position and gets megged, I think, on the return ball for Kyle Lahren from Jonathan David. Miles Robinson, as you said, I think he's ball-watching a little bit on that one-two, realizes he's lost it, tries to make up the ground, uh, Kyle Aaron too strong. Miles falls over. And then on the final angle, Joe, I sent you the still of this one. I What I noticed is Matt Turner still gets a hand to this, and it still seems like he maybe almost saves it. And I wondered what was the obstacle preventing him from doing so, watching it again when that shot is taken. I think the only thing I can say is like it's just, it's just a bad moment from Matt Turner. His feet aren't set. He's trying to shuffle over to get into the right position, and as that ball is struck, you freeze frame it, both feet are off the ground, meaning that they have to hit the ground, then he has to adjust his weight, then he has to push off and try to make that sprawling save back across goal, and he never really gets that push off. He never gets that thrust that's needed, so he can't get the full extension. He doesn't get the save, and there it is, 1-0 to Cam. Canada. And I think that was about the worst thing that could have happened to the U.S. My prediction, I think it got cut off in the pregame show, Joe, but my prediction was that if it were nil-nil uh, after the first 10 minutes, it would be nil-nil at halftime. And the only reason why I didn't want to make that prediction is because we've seen the U.S. score very quickly. If they kind of started and caught Canada out, there was a chance they would score. But there was also a chance that Canada could catch the United States if they were overconfident or just a little bit too slow, or in this case, just a few things went wrong, and then all the other things were the case as well. But for it to be the seventh minute, for it to be this game where it's sort of, I think the the billing for this one was like, yes, it's Canada, yes, they've been good, yes, they're top of the table, but it's not Mexico at the Azteca, they should get a result here in the United States. I think that almost set them up for failure right away, because it dismisses Canada to some extent, or it doesn't give them their full credit. And there's no Alfonso Davies. They can't be that threatening. Clearly they can be. And so I think for the U.S. to go into this one and then realize it's going to be a fight, the crowd is up for it, the atmosphere is like not great in terms of the actual weather, it's a small fit, it's a small pitch, it's going to be a challenge. And to go 1-0 down in that seventh minute, as you said, Joe, it means now they have to score at least one if they want any points in this one. And it changes the structure of the game. It takes the pressure off of Canada. They can be more relaxed. They're not having to press and really go for it to get that goal later on in the game and maybe leave themselves open. Instead, they can now be comfortable, not coast, but certainly sit off a little bit more, invite the U.S. onto them, and then try to smack them around a little bit. And I think they did just that. But that goal really was the difference maker for me on the night. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. If that goal doesn't find the back of the net. And I know, sorry to interrupt, Joe. I know that's a very silly thing as well to say as though it's a profound statement. Like when when the opposition team went up 1-0, that was a pretty important moment. But I think more than it just being a goal, everything that we've said already, it's that if that does not happen, I think the entire face of the game is different because I think the pressure mounts on Canada. I think the U.S. grows into it. They don't feel that immediate pressure to make something happen. But also they don't. they aren't kind of rattled. They don't sit off. They don't sit deep. I think that is a thing that started to happen near the end of the first half was they sat off more. They didn't want to concede another one. And I think just the overall nature of this game completely changes with that goal. And for it to all occur in like fewer than 10 seconds, I think is is pretty monumental. Well, and it's not like, Taylor, it's not like Canada was creating an infinite number yeah, of chances, exactly. right? Like if that one doesn't find the back of the net, there aren't that many other ones 
that could have hit the back of the net, right? I think they had maybe two shots in the first half, maybe three. The U.S. outshot Canada. They outpossessed Canada in the first half. The U.S. wasn't creating much with that possession. The shots they were creating weren't particularly high quality. But it's not like, oh, you know, Canada just would have converted their next one. There weren't that many next ones here. So I think your point is completely fair. And that's that's why I'm with you on that. It, it was a huge point in this game, especially now in hindsight, because we know how much the U.S. struggled with the ball. You get to the end of the first half and you think, okay, this team hasn't, this U.S. team hasn't created much yet. There's still 45 more minutes. Canada hasn't threatened that much with the ball. The U.S. isn't in the worst spot right now. They have that much time to try and get back in this game and get a point on the road, get three points on the road. And that just doesn't happen. The issues with the U.S. attack rear their ugly heads over and over again in this game, in both the first half and the second half. And I don't think the U.S. ever really moved the ball consistently into positions that that were going to lead them to getting the ball in the back of the net, Taylor. Uh, Joe, anything else, broadly speaking, from the first half from you? Um, Nothing nothing else that I have to say is specific to the first half. It overlaps both halves. All right. Well, then let's let's move to the second half. First, let's pause at halftime for a moment, because as I said, I was feeling mostly optimistic about things. Even with the U.S. 1-0 down, it felt like even if they weren't going to win, even if they weren't going to get a draw, it seemed like this was a very good opportunity for the United States to make necessary adjustments and for Burhalter to show that he can make those in-game adjustments to capitalize on the vulnerabilities presented by the opposition while at the same time limiting their strengths. And when the United States comes out for the second half, I'm ready to see some changes, not even personnel. I wasn't one of the people who wanted Ricardo Pepe to start the second half or thought we needed to change everything completely. But I wanted to see more intensity. I wanted to see the ball moving more quickly. And I wanted to see variation in approach. And I felt like basically from the start of the second half, it was more of the same. And if anything, kind of the opposite of what I wanted to see in that I saw the United States playing into areas of the field that it seemed like Canada wanted them to play into, wanted them to be in. Specifically, the it seems like the United States was very much set up to attack down the channels almost every time without really ever having numbers central or any sort of possession through the middle. And on the rewatch, Joe, that just stood out massively to me, how often the U.S. had numbers out wide and would try to find combinations. And even when they would... It ultimately ended up with one person trying to ping a cross in with four defenders central in the box for Canada, and maybe maybe at best, one or two attackers in the box, and it never felt like it was going to come to much for the United States. Paul Carr tweeted out at halftime, Taylor, that 44% of the U.S. men's national team's first half touches were in the right vertical third of the field. Then mm-hmm. 34%, so 44 on the right, 34% of the touches were in the Oof. left third of the field. So only 22% of the U.S.'s touches were in the middle strip, that middle vertical channel of the field. That, I'm sure, I don't have the numbers, and maybe Paul's tweeted this out and I just missed it, but I'm guessing it's pretty darn similar in the second half. I might be worse. It It, might be. be. It absolutely might be worse. The U.S. could not get the ball into central positions on any sort of consistent basis in this game. Almost all of the U.S.'s attacking play, I joked earlier, Taylor, that 90% of it took place out wide. I I wasn't that far off, actually, thinking about it now. But all the play was happening on the wings. And that's that's fine. It's not ideal, but you can still win games that way. But even on those wings, there were far too many situations. I tweeted out one of these uh, surrounding Weston McKinney in the second half, Taylor, where the U.S. had the ball on the wing. Instead of trying to switch the point of attack and eventually penetrate centrally, Weston McKinney just puts his head down and charges down the left wing into a space where the U.S. have not a numerical advantage, but a numerical disadvantage on that left wing. It was maybe two extra Canada players on the on the left side for the U.S. and the right side for Canada. 
There were way too many sequences like that in this game where the U.S. didn't decide to switch the point of attack. And my point earlier about Canada making those switches difficult still stands. But again, it's not impossible to do that. You just have to be thoughtful in how you're doing it. Far too often, the U.S. put their heads down and decided not to switch the point of attack and just tried to pound through this immovable wall when they could have just tried to switch the point of attack and find space on the weak side. So that's just one, and we'll get into other challenges here, but that's just one of the issues that I think contributed to how much of the game was played out wide and away from meaningful chance creation areas. We can get into other ones, but I'm going to stick with this one for a moment because as the second half goes on, and I think it is a halftime adjustment, but I think it, it, it grows in prominence as it goes on, is that that midfield three, Musa, Adams, and McKinney, as the second half starts, what I saw was Musa take up a much wider position pretty much all the time on the left side, and McKinney would do the same on the right. Uh, and sometimes they would they would switch sides, but it was usually the same thing, is, is that oftentimes it was Tyler Adams was your lone figure in the center of the pitch, and usually he had somebody right on him or right near him, so he's not really a passing option. You could go back to the center backs, which is what the U.S. routinely did. Otherwise... I think the game plan was spread out and try to make Canada spread out their defense to cover all of that, and that theoretically opens up gaps. What ended up happening is Canada would just crowd everybody on one side. The U.S. was already shifting numbers to that one side, so that when they would shift to the other, it wouldn't be that one big switch that first time hit. It would be hold, 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 pass to the left center back who would take a touch, look around, turn, play it to the right center back who would take a touch and play it out wide to the right fullback. And by then Canada slid everybody over and now they have numbers on that side to defend it. And the U.S. doubling down in that let's get numbers wide approach, I think shot themselves in the foot because then you're not causing problems through the middle. The times that the U.S. would get quick combinations or quick passes through the middle. I think at least twice in the first half, they end up getting free kicks out of it or they get uh, decent opportunities or decent moments from it. And those sort of quit happening until Ricardo Pepe comes in and he has a few, he creates a few little combinations, but then that fades. And I just think the United States so often in the end was Anthony Robinson getting five yards of space near the corner flag, picking his head up and realizing there is no one for him to cross to. And sometimes even when there was, that cross isn't hit perfectly. And I just think the United States focus so much on getting down those channels and getting numbers down those channels but it was never particularly quick uh at least in in terms of the combinations and the passes sometimes it was direct i wouldn't say that was quick i would say it was direct and i just think ultimately it led to a very disjointed second half so that is a a big big factor for me joe but let's keep talking about that second half let's talk about some other things that weren't working for the united states or were working for canada but first let's take one more break and then we will return This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can 
very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. All right, Joe. So we've talked about the the dominance of wing play. What else do you think wasn't working for the United States? Mostly in the second half is what I'd like to focus on. But if you want to go broad picture, we can do that as well. Sure. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference between the first half and the second half. So yeah, I think anything fair. we say really will, will apply in both of those situations. One thing to, to get a little bit more general about the U.S. here, it felt to me like the ball movement was too slow. And we've touched on this already. Yeah. We've, we've touched on it. But just saying it that simply, it's not rocket science here, right? The ball didn't move quick enough from one player to the next. It would go from from Miles to Chris Richards in the back, or it would go from Adams to those two players, and, and they would triangulate a little bit, but without actually moving the ball purposefully. I, I think in this game, the U.S. really missed purposeful possession. They, they had plenty of the ball. They dominated in that particular statistic. But they allowed Canada to stay way too compact 
which meant, Taylor, when Canada is so congested in the middle of the field, it forces the ball out wide, which we've already talked about. And then the U.S. was too slow to move the ball to the other wing to stretch Canada. But, but the end result of that is tons of wing play and also by its very nature, no real attacking play between the lines. I mean, think about all the times in this game where the U.S. got the ball between the lines. I, I can't think of many. Man, Christian Pulisic had it there a couple of times. Weston McKinney maybe maybe moving that space occasionally. But the U.S. almost never targeted those spaces. The, the, the big reason behind all of that, or at least one of them, is the U.S. never forced Canada to move. They, they could camp that weak side wide midfielder, Tejan or, or Richie. They could camp that player on the U.S.'s weak side fullback, discourage ball progression and, and ball rotation along the back line, and then stay in their 4-4-2 shape and be comfy. They didn't have to move. They could sit back. They could have a bag of chips. There was almost nothing for them to do. That was a huge issue for this game. Then when the U.S. couldn't progress the ball and, and switch it onto the other side, or when they chose not to, too much tunnel vision. And I already mentioned that earlier with the Weston McKinney example. There, there's far too many of those problems. So, so that's an issue that I saw all stemming. Those are issues, I should, I should say, that I saw all stemming from the slow ball movement, which was also a symptom of the El Salvador game, I should add. Those were problems. And then one other thing, Taylor, before I, pl- I flip it back to you here. There's times where the U.S. had opportunities to go forward and didn't. There's times where they went forward when they shouldn't have. They, they progressed down the wing when they should have pulled the ball back or, or played a diagonal over to the weak side. And there's times when they didn't go forward. Adams, Taylor, Tyler Adams in this game continues to do a lot of defensive dirty work and, and I thought did a good job in a lot of defensive moments. He did not push the game. He had a couple of, of pretty high-profile turnovers in this game, one in the U.S.'s half, one in the, in the first half where he tries to find Brendan Aronson on the right wing and just mishits the ball. He was not the only midfield player to struggle with that, but he did not push the game forward. Weston McKinney pushed too much in the wrong moments and too little in the right moments. And there's there's a lot of sequences that illustrate that. I think same for Christian Pulisic, Taylor, in this game. That's a microcosm with those guys of the U.S.'s attack in this particular match against Canada. Pushing in the wrong moments, not pushing in the right moments. And when you do that, when you can't find the attacking balance, it's almost impossible to destabilize a defense as, as good as this Canada defense. And what I'm picking up, Joe, is why I think you and I came away a little bit more frustrated on the second viewing. We talked about about this with El Salvador, that when you're rewatching, you you really like the scenarios in which you can see what wasn't working and either what they did to fix it or why they couldn't fix it. And here it feels like little holes in the dam that every time there's like, okay, this wasn't working. So, oh, but then that didn't work either. And then this didn't work. And it just feels like there's so many little problems here. And I think honestly what that speaks to is just a lot of little problems. It was Canada's night. It was Canada's game. The U.S. weren't sharp enough, weren't good enough. I don't know how much big picture stuff we need to go into, at least not right now. But I'll say to echo some of the points you've made, Joe, I agree with you that I think it goes back to it feels like the instructions were attack down the channels, stretch Canada out, make them get too stretched, and then you'll find those gaps in the middle to exploit. But I, I sent you a screen grab in the 74th minute. Ricardo Pepe has has basically checked to. He showed the ball doesn't go to him. Instead, I think it goes to maybe Eunice Musa, who lays it out wide. Musa may have been off at that point. But basically, it gets pushed out wide to Serginho Dest, who's sort of I think he's in the uh, what's that the half the half channel or whatever it is half space yeah half space yeah and 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 essentially has like an overlapping run out wide and that's where he ends up playing it but he also has Pepe who has checked two now makes that diagonal run back central and it's a tight gap it's only a few yards between I would say five or six Canadian players. But as I texted you, if that's Barcelona, Serginho Dest is absolutely trying to thread that needle. But because if he does, and I think the expectation at Barcelona is that he would be able to do that, 
if he does, he plays it perfectly into the path of Ricardo Pepe, who takes one touch and is basically perfectly positioned one-on-one to get a very good shot off. But that ball doesn't come. It gets slowed down. It's played wide. There's a few more touches. And then I think there's a cross that's just headed clear. And that sort of... The, like, overly deliberate way the U.S. tried to build, usually out wide, ended up really stifling their creativity central. Yeah. And and I think it, it just meant that the United States wasn't really able to play this kind of quick football that you need to be able to play to make your opponent uncomfortable. Joe, a, a thing that you spotlighted, and I think we should mention here— Another good example of this to me, that the U.S. was pretty predictable and also too slow, is the Weston McKinney long throw. And we've joked about it as being a foul throw, and it is. The way he brings the ball back, I believe, is illegal, because I'm pretty sure you have to bring it over your head. Certainly the way he releases it, it's all with one arm. You can see the spin. Uh, But the point that you made, Joe, is that more often than not, rather than this being a threat for the U.S. that they created from, it led to Canada counterattacking pretty effectively. It really did. And credit to Donald Norman, who, who kind of triggered this thought process on Twitter. You can follow him, I believe, at Donald Norman. Either mm-hmm. way, just type it. You can find it. But he he brought this up to me and, and a few others. And I think it's a great point. The the Weston McKinney long, fro- long throw. I gave you me. credit, Joe. I'm not giving you credit anymore. Credit to Donald <laughs> Norman. Anyway, Joe. It consistently led to counterattacking mm-hmm. chances for Canada in this game. It's and, crazy. And you don't want to give – you do not want to give Canada those kinds of chances. Now, the U.S. is fortunate. It didn't really result in much for Canada in this game. As we mentioned, they weren't all that good with the ball. But, man, there's a number of sequences. The first time McKenney has this long throw, it's in the fifth minute of this game. Canada deal with the initial throw into the box and then counter down the right wing through uh, through Jonathan David and Richie Larea. It happens another time. It happens another time. There's the 54th minute example where Canada deal with the initial throw. Jonathan David picks up the ball and counters. And, and Canada break into the attacking half. And and take valuable time off the clock, number one, and, and threaten, like legitimately threaten. Those are the kinds of moments, Taylor, that you're talking about earlier where, yeah, to my point, they're not resulting in goal-scoring actions. But to your point, they are threatening in, in some way, by some definition. So that that was interesting to me. This throw, you can even trace it back to the El Salvador game and earlier on for the U.S. because he's been doing this for a while. I don't know when the last time this resulted in a real chance for the U.S. I don't think the ball comes in fast enough. I don't think it comes in at at a high enough velocity to allow the receiver, any U.S. player looking to get their head on it or their foot on it, to get enough power on the ball in that mix of bodies. Because everyone knows it's coming, Taylor. Everybody knows that that throw is coming from Weston McKinney. It's painfully obvious when he marches over there and takes the throw. I don't necessarily know that it's always the worst idea for the U.S., but in this game against Canada, with the attacking talent that they have, it felt like another, maybe maybe a poor decision, first of all, but another thing that's slowing the game down yep. and taking opportunities away from the U.S. And because they're treating it as like a legitimate corner free kick set piece, I see numbers getting into and around the box the way you would with a corner. I don't see the defensive preparations in place. And so twice in the second half, I would even say, Joe, that there are goal-scoring opportunities because I believe the double save that we get from Matt Turner comes from a Weston McKinney long throw that goes the other way. And then there's one, I think it's Buchanan ends up getting the shot, but it gets blocked and it sort of, it stays in bounds. I think uh, Jonathan David collects it and keeps play going, but it was a clear shot that ends up getting blocked. But both of those are from McKinney throws. And And just sort of the way the U.S. sets up, gets numbers into the box, it takes time, it slows things down, and then it still leaves them vulnerable. That is not ideal. But speaking of killing time, I also think it's a credit to Canada that they made, in my mind, that second half 
as disjointed as they could. Uh, I One of the reasons, Joe, why I, I asked Joe for like 15 extra minutes, listeners. The reason why is because I went back and watched the start of the second half and clocked it. Uh, when 10 minutes have gone by in the 55th minute, they have played 6 minutes and 22 seconds. When 15 minutes have gone by, they've played 9 minutes and 41 seconds. When 20 minutes have gone by, they've played 12 minutes and 49 seconds. And a lot of that is Canada... If they know they're going to put the ball out of bounds, they hoof that ball out of bounds, and then the ball kids take their time to get that ball back. Sometimes when they did, they would throw another one on to slow <laughs> things down. That was a fun wrinkle. There was also a lot of little afters. There's the one, Joe, you might remember when Vittorio and Zardes have a clash of heads. Do you remember that yep. moment in the yep. second half? If you go back and watch it, Vittorio absolutely knows what he's doing. Like, absolutely. Bodies, like, stands up like he's going to take a charge from Zardes, but even kind of gets his arms up. Like, he is looking for contact. He is looking to body Giassi Zardes. And I think sells it a little bit. Because I don't think he gets hit in the head. But he absolutely goes down like, oh, I was whacked in the head. It almost looks like he's trying to draw the foul the opposite way. And it, I think it ends up being a drop ball. But just... Little things like that. Pulisic getting a lot of kicks after the ball is gone. McKinney getting kicks. Uh, we saw Dest and Buchanan get into it a few times because I think Dest had some of that. And there was just a very good job of disrupting and frustrating from Canada. There was never... It's never really cheap shots. It never went as far as like the Concacafery of uh, Borhan, like get, catching the ball, falling down, staying down for 15 seconds, getting up, waiting another 15 seconds, then pretending to kick it, then needing another five seconds. Like there wasn't that level. It was really just smart. And I think annoying if you're a U.S. player that it just keeps frustrating you. It keeps slowing it down. You keep having to stop. Somebody needs treatment. Oh, this person's hurt now. That person got a kick. Where's the ball? Oh, I can't get it. Oh, now there's two balls here. Like it just keeps you disoriented. It keeps you having to think about things, to figure things out. And so you're never in a flow state. You're never just playing your game. You're never getting truly comfortable and finding that groove. You're always having to adjust a little bit. And I think that just kept the United States from like finding their center, from finding their ability to play the game they wanted to play. And that's part of the challenge with leaving things as late as the U.S. has been True. leaving them, Taylor, True. right? This whole mantra of this, this squad being a second-half team, that's all well and good until the ball is only in play for 25 minutes in the second half. You know, I mean, th there's real issues with leaving things so late. And so I, I still look back on the first half and say, yep, in another world, that thing is 0-0 and this whole thing ends 0-0 and the U.S. gets a point on the road. And we're probably talking about this game a little bit differently, I, although I hope we're not talking about it all that differently. But when you leave things as late as the U.S. left them in this game, pushing numbers forward, hoping and praying that Paul Yarlow's bicycle kick is going to find the back of the net or Ricardo Pepe is going to convert from a really tight angle at the near post. And, and when you do that and leave space for Sam Atacucbe to, to counterattack in behind you and Kamal Miller to boot the ball up the field and ice the game with one of the last kicks of the whole match, you're doing yourself a disservice with all the attacking struggles we've mentioned. Slow ball movement, uh, deliberate. Taylor, I think you used the phrase overly deliberate play on the wings. I love that. That's a perfect way to describe it. Too slow, too focused on wide play, not enough active switching, not enough purposeful possession, too much direct play at times and not enough direct play at other times. All of those factors led to a stagnant U.S. attacking performance. One other factor, though, Taylor, I wanted to mention. Losing, losing attacking 1v1s in this game. I don't think there was a single U.S. player, at least in the final third or in, in the attacking half, outside of the midfielders just progressing yeah, the ball yeah, and shouldering yeah. a load. Because Moose and McKinney did plenty of that, and they did a good job of those things. I don't think Dest or Polisic or Aronson were particularly dynamic in those 1v1 situations. Dest struggled to beat Tejon Buchanan. 
I don't, I don't remember a single time where that happened in a meaningful area. He lost multiple of those duels. I'm, I'm certain of it. One in the 54th minute, Taylor, is the, the play that's right before the little scrap between those yep. two guys, between Tejan and Dest. Dest tries to beat him in the box, can't, gets whistled for a foul, and then they go and do the whole, like, ah, uh, I'm tougher than you, head-to-head kind of deal. That, that, that didn't work out for the U.S., and that didn't, certainly didn't work out for Serginho Dest on the right side. Christian Pulisic struggled to beat Alistair Johnson in this game, and credit to Alistair Johnson but man, this is just a continuation of Christian Pulisic's struggles recently, and I, I feel for him. I'm not trying to pile on here, but that's the the reality of this game is he didn't thrive in those moments against Alistair Johnson or against Larea or Radakugbe or whoever you know he was up against in any particular moment. Tyler Adams, I mentioned, poor on the ball. Musa turnovers early on in this game. Those aren't 1v1 situations, but they are individual sloppy mistakes, right? Those things were, were far too those things were happening far too often for the US. And so when you have those individual errors in terms of execution added on to all of the systemic attacking problems that were there in this game and have been there at other times under Greg Berhalter, that's that's really a problem for the US. And I, I'm not saying the world is on fire right now and the US are not gonna qualify. It's way too early to be saying those things, although Panama winning their game today does make things a little more complicated for the US. They are still in the top three right now after match day ten. But there's issues. There have been issues. This is not necessarily new, but it's unfortunate when you go back through and list out all of these things. Joe, I'm really happy that you brought that up because I kind of forgot I had a second page of notes here. Uh, And if I scroll (laughs) down, that was a key thing I wanted to mention because I first want to say I think like I especially have pointed out a lot of negatives about this game. And I think it all begs the question, like, is this Burhalter's fault? Is this a Burhalter problem? Can this get better? And We can answer those questions in various ways, but one thing I would like to spotlight is a specific way it can get better, and it's exactly what you're talking about. That 50, did you say it was 54th when it was Death versus Buchanan? So I didn't write that down, but I watched that sequence maybe 10 times because what I kept trying to figure out, if people go back and watch that one, there are, at that point, it's one of the few times, I think there are four U.S. players in the box, not including Dest, and all of them check away or stay static. And I was desperately trying to figure out, why are you all moving away from the ball? Why are you moving behind defenders? Why aren't you running around? And I realized they're running a clear out. All they're trying to do is allow those 1v1s. And I think that was a huge part of the U.S. game plan, was once you do get a person into a relatively good attacking position, especially if they're in a 1v1 situation, clear out and let them go, let them create, let them cook, and then adjust to what they've done if he does get by then be there for like the near post cross be there for the trash after the shot but when they don't get by and they as you said joe regularly did not what that leaves you with is people kind of stagnant or static and standing and then it allows the other team to go and counter the other way because no one is kind of swarming to the ball no one is making runs and i think that was by design I think they wanted to take their chances. I think they wanted to make Canada uncomfortable and maybe try to draw a penalty, try to draw some free kicks, try to make some things happen on an individual 1v1 level. I don't really want to see that that much because to me that is planning for improvisation. You are planning to basically rely on the individual brilliance of your players and it presupposes that you have more talent than the other team, that you have more ability to execute 1v1. 
Some scenarios or some cases they do, some cases they don't. And what I would have much preferred was an overlapping run, an underlapping run, a quick combination, a quick wall pass with Dest in that moment. But it kept happening with Pulisic, with McKinney, with Pepe on one occasion, with Zardes on one occasion. It was this sort of everybody clear out and let this guy cook. And when the U.S. isn't cooking, when those burners aren't on, it just ends up with this sort of like a double step over, the ball gets poked away and Canada counter. And a huge thing I would like to see the United States really focus on in the time they have left and in the upcoming World Cup qualifiers in this this remaining fixture, but then the next round as well. I would love to see more off-the-ball movement. I would love to see the U.S. not just hunting in packs on defense, but attacking in packs with numbers, with quick passes, with quick changes of play. I think if you increase that passing speed, if you increase the numbers swarming and running, I think there's going to be so many more opportunities and so much more space because I think that's what Canada was trying to do, and that's where I think they had some joy. I would love for the U.S. to try to do the same thing. And it's totally possible for us to see that, Taylor. We've seen it earlier on in this, you know, in, in the Ocho already, right? The Mexico 2-0 win in Cincinnati, there was a lot of good coming out of that game. The Costa Rica game at home, the Jamaica game at home, there was good coming out of those games as well, although not as cons- not as much consistent good as the Mexico game. But I, I, I agree with you, Taylor. I agree with your solution there. I think this is, though a challenge for the U.S. men's national team right now, given their track record. We can yeah. set aside Nations League, we can set aside Gold Cup when the U.S. struggled in long stretches to generate chances. But I just went back and thought through the other match days and woke up qualifying so far for the U.S. men's national team. Match day one, El Salvador. That was when Conrad and Des started on the left. Aronson started as an eight on that left side. It didn't work. The U.S. struggled. And I think a lot of that game was a slog for the U.S. and it ends in a nil-nil draw. The match day two against Canada, the home game in Nashville, that game was a slog. The U.S. created very little. Aronson gets a goal. It comes in a transition moment. The U.S. don't look all that threatening against Canada's block. Not ideal from a chance creation standpoint. Match day three, that's the Honduras game. And, and that first half is the definition of slog in, in Webster's Dictionary. Parts of the October window were a struggle, <laughs> right? Match day eight, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but match yeah. day eight at Jamaica, that was a struggle. Taylor, we did the live Bleacher Report post-game show after that. That was not a good game for the U.S. Parts of the El Salvador game, you know, were not ideal, but I'm not going to loop it in here. The, the recent El Salvador game, I'm not going to loop it in here with the amount of XG that they created and the chances that Jesus Ferreira had and, and that were there for other players as well. But then you come to this game, match day 10, this was very clearly an attacking struggle. We've been talking about it for the last 30 minutes now. That's a that's a trend. That's a pattern. Match day one, two, three, parts of October, match day eight, match day 10. That's more than half of the qualifying fixtures that the U.S. has played where there have been legitimate issues against teams that have a cohesive defensive game plan. I'm not saying that the U.S. cannot qualify. I'm not saying that the U.S. is a bad team, but attacking-wise, there are a lot of questions about this squad. I have a lot of questions about this squad, and I don't, Taylor, to go back to really where this whole last you know few minutes began, to your point about there being an easy fix, I agree with you that, that that's the case on paper, but... I almost think it would be a little foolish to expect all of those things to be fixed by Wednesday or by March or even by November should the U.S. make it. And I still think they will. That's that's where I'm concerned about this team. I don't really have many concerns about def- their work defensively. They were really good in this game, as I've illustrated. And, and that's what would have won them this game in a different world. That's what's won them other games in, in the cycle so far. But attacking-wise, there are real issues with this team right now, and I do have a lot of questions about how those issues are going to be resolved or if they're going to be resolved. And and I'm not trying to like have that debate about Burhalter at this point, nor do I think we even need to, because the reality is we are second, maybe third. I'm not sure where we are on the table right now. I think results have been finalized elsewhere. But 
The U.S. is still likely to qualify. This result did not go the way we wanted, but the U.S., I believe, still second on 18 points ahead of Mexico on goal difference. And there's no chance Berhalter is getting sacked for people on Twitter who think that that is a realistic outcome. That isn't happening. Short of failure to qualify. Uh, And even then, I think it might be a push. But no, I think he would then. But in the meantime, Joe, I think what we're looking at is... More frustration and the post-match comments from Berhalter, I think if you are already frustrated with him or feel like he's not the guy, <laughs> these comments are going to send you over the ledge because they're very much like, eh, it was a fine game. It could have gone the other way. It was okay. And I think seeing it from the perspective that we're talking about, which is there are many realities in which this is a nil-nil draw, in which it's a, a narrow 1-0 win for the United States. In this case, it's a 2-0 loss. But I think if you're Burhalter, there were things that he liked. They did execute certain things, the defensive side especially, bar that first goal. The second goal, I think, we've talked about maybe not being as important as that first goal. But I, I, I think there, the major issue remains the attack and the lack of goals for. I would love to see the United States put together some more consistent attacking play and get more goals. But the crazy thing, Joe, is that I believe I'm correct in saying that we have scored, I think it's Canada have 17, Panama have 14, and then the United States and Mexico are level at 13. And then from there, it's a lot fewer for everybody else. So I kind of assumed it was going to be everybody had like 18, 19, 20 goals, and here's the U.S. with 13, to realize It's pretty tight, and the U.S. has conceded the second fewest goals. Canada has uh, conceded only five, the U.S. seven. It's not not nearly as bleak. I think it just feels worse because of this win and because there haven't been those games in which the U.S. is winning four, five, six, nil, doing so comprehensively. Everybody's flying and scoring and passing, and it just looks so good. So many of these games have been difficult and stressful and challenging until the very end. I really hope this Honduras game is a comfortable, comprehensive win. And even if it's at home against Honduras, it's still in the snow. It's going to be difficult conditions. I think a strong result there has me at least feeling significantly better. Not that I'm even feeling that bad about things at present. The challenge for the U.S. from this game is they they didn't give themselves a lot of wiggle room, right? When Panama win their game and they keep the gap tight between the top three and and Panama in fourth, there's a one-point gap between Panama and Mexico and the U.S. When those results happen, the U.S. drop points, Panama gets all three. It, it reduces the margin for error. And that's where the U.S. is right now. They're not giving themselves much room for error. The Honduras game, Taylor, to your point, is huge. And it was always huge, right? Coming into this window, the two home games were the winnable games, really the winnable games. Not that this one wasn't. But you, you back yourself to win those two games on U.S. soil, certainly much more than you do to, to play the best team right now in CONCACAF away from home. So that's not a surprise. And so in that way, this game was never a real must-win game. But it it still feels frustrating, right? It it still is frustrating for players, for fans, for people who watch this game. It's frustrating. And I don't know that it's really impossible. I mean, it's entirely possible for the U.S. to go out and beat Honduras and to qualify and all of those things. But I I do feel for people who read those comments from Greg Berhalter after the game saying we were entirely dominant. You know, I've never seen a a performance this dominant without a result from from our group. You know, I think it is fair to criticize Baralther for the lack, and I've done it already on this show. I think it's fair to criticize the U.S. for the lack of attacking quality that they've been able to generate. There's a gap between the talent level and the output, and that's a problem. And it's happened consistently enough across a number of different players that it goes deeper than the players. It goes to, you know, the coaching staff and it goes to Greg Baralther. I'm inclined to put blame there. 
you know, and, and that makes it frustrating headed into this final game of the window and headed into March. It's not going to be an easy breezy next four games for the U.S. men's national team. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be probably more stressful than any of us would like, Any more stressful than Greg Berhalter would like. But that's this U.S. team right now. They're a really good defensive team. They can give anybody a game. But when it comes to them having the ball, it's not, they're not at a place where you can rely on them to create consistently. All right, let me ask you this then. Is there a coach out there who you think has this team playing better, gets them playing better attacking soccer? I know it's difficult. It's always theoretical. We don't know how they would actually deal with national teams with this group of players. But Joe, in your mind, like, is this an obstacle that Berhalter cannot overcome or is very unlikely to overcome given how often we've had to talk about this? Do you think there is a coach that could get the U.S. playing better attacking football? John Herdman. I mean, I mean, there's <laughs> there's a lot of coaches out there. I'm I'm sure that could do that job. Everybody has different strengths, right? All of these coaches are going to have different strengths. There's, it's entirely possible that the next guy who comes in, the next the next person who comes in to this job, does a much better job with the attack and a much worse job with defense. There are better coaches, and Greg Berhalter would tell you this. I'm sure there are better coaches out there than Greg Berhalter. It's not going to change between now and the World Cup, though. It, it's just not. And so the challenge for this U.S. team is. Can we harness our attacking firepower into something actually productive? And I don't know the answer to that. John Herdman might be able to get more out of this group. Tata Martino might be able to get more out of this group. You know, Lopetegui might be able to get more out of this group. But none of those things are going to happen. We can criticize Greg Berhalter, but it's it's up to him and it's up to this group to change for the better, to get these important results at home, to come into March and, and go down to Central America and get results there as well. And, and Taylor, we're going to find out how this whole darn thing goes. All right, Joe, I'm going to ask you for this. We can build it together then. I would like to end, not even necessarily on a positive, but if we're talking about how it's going to be difficult to change, how there's going to be people very frustrated with Burhalter, kind of regardless, but also some of that frustration is justified. To me, it feels worth looking at the Honduras game, not even from a, like, we want all three points. We do want all three points. We want to score goals. We do want to score, like, a bunch of goals. Like, those are kind of givens. For you, Joe... What are some things that we could see from the United States that would make you feel just a little bit better about the attacking side of things? Quicker ball movement. Quicker Mm -hmm. ball movement, moving the ball laterally, and then finding options between the lines. The U.S. didn't do a lot of that. Carlin Carpenter on Twitter had a great visual breakdown of McKenney and Musa being, and I think we even talked about this on the show, Taylor, being too deep. Not operating those, not operating in those gaps between El Salvador's lines. And I think a lot of those same things happen today, whether it's those midfielders, those two eights, whether it's the two wingers not finding consistent gaps in between the lines for Canada. And that's connected to the slow ball movement that we talked about earlier. So I want to see the U.S. move the ball quicker. I want to see them find options between the lines. I want to see the U.S. be dangerous in 1v1 situations in a way that they just were not today. And, and Taylor, the best part is I think all those things are possible. In fact, I, I probably would be more surprised than not if the U.S. doesn't put together a more cohesive attacking performance against Honduras. Not least because it would be hard to do a lot worse than they did today, but also because they have the talent to do so. They have the talent to to put a goal past El Salvador at home, right? They should be doing these things. They absolutely should beat Honduras. And I'll be extremely surprised if they don't do that and if they don't continue to play and get the results they need to go to the World Cup. The challenge is in games like this against Canada, in games like, you know, Mexico games and games against higher opposition or in challenging circumstances, we haven't seen the U.S. do enough with the ball to really look convincing in those games. So I know I just took it back to Canada, no. and I'm sorry. No, you're good. But I think we will see those positive building blocks against Honduras, just like we've seen them in the past. The challenge is, will we see those things consistently enough from 
the beginning of February to the end of March, from the end of March into the summer friendlies that the U.S. has before the World Cup, from those into the World Cup. And that's the part that I'm less sure of right now. I agree with all three of your points. Balls between, balls between the lines, quicker ball movement, and uh, dangerous in 1v1s. My thing that I would like to add, and it was an issue uh, against El Salvador, it was an issue tonight against Canada, is how much space there tends to be between the lines. And we're talking about a Honduras team that have conceded the most goals of any team in the Ocho, uh, a, a team that has yet to win, a team that will be playing away from home that we would assume will be very, very defensive. Now, maybe I'm wrong and they spring at Canada and they come out and press, but I feel like equally or more likely is that they are defensive and they try to frustrate the United States. And what I am desperate to see the U.S. do is truly commit numbers. And I I don't think that they have done that yet. I think the goal against Canada or Canada's goal just knocked the wind out of their sails and made them set up a little bit deeper. It made them less likely to step out aggressively. I think they were worried about getting hit again, and so they slowed down their attacking play. They didn't commit the numbers for it that they needed to. Against Honduras, I want to see the U.S. with a high line. I want to see them with numbers high up. I want numbers in the box, and I want numbers moving off the ball around the ball, not just sort of making runs to the far post and hoping a cross comes in, but I want to see some overlaps. I want to see them work to clear out space for those 1v1s so they can be dangerous because it doesn't have to be that you make an overlapping run and that ball comes in and now we've got a cross. That's fine if that happens, but what can also happen is if Giassi Zardes, to throw out a name, starts central, Serginho Dest is in that exact same situation he was with Tejan Buchanan, and Zardes goes central, makes that sprinting run around Dest into the channel. If you're Tejan Buchanan and there's no one to your left... You have to take a step over. You have to just sort of discourage that pass from going wide while trying to defend. But now you're doing two things. And as soon as you're trying to defend one player and defend another and also sort of defend the pass, you're less locked in on that 1v1 defense. And maybe that buys a step or a yard or a half a yard or whatever it might be for for Serginho Dest. But it buys him just another opportunity. Or even if it doesn't, if Buchanan doesn't step but instead takes away the interior, well, then you play that ball out wide and now Giassi's artist has it open in space and he can pick his head up and maybe someone has to go crashing to him and that leaves somebody else open but you start setting these dominoes up to make the opponent knock them down i'm not quite sure that's how dominoes works but you understand the (laughs) metaphor that in the end i think you create chaos and the more chaos you are creating in the opposition 18 the more likely you are to get a goal here or there so i hope we see more movement the u.s higher up the u.s aggressive in those 1v1s, finding some success, moving the ball quickly, balls between the lines, 8 no win, Joe Lowry. Who says no? Aside from Honduras. Yeah, Honduras. Yeah, Honduras, first of all. <laughs> Get ready for chaos, Honduras. Yeah, it's baby. coming your way. Tim Wayne's hey, going to be back. There we go. The U.S. is going to be doing stuff. It's going to be better than, than this. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Tim Wayne's back. It's always better than this, True Joe that. Lowry. True Joe, that. anything else? Because we've gone uh, long as we are wont to do. Anything else that we should mention before we call this one a day? I don't think so, Taylor. I think we went in pretty deep on what mm. went wrong for the U.S. on some individuals as well. I, I think we did it, Taylor. All right. Then my final note would just be Christian Pulisic. Listen listen to Weston McKinney. Clear the first defender. Three of the first uh, four set pieces. He does not get over the first defender. The the time he does, it's the header for Weston McKinney that is uh, a lovely save from Boyan. Uh, I think it's a double save. I thought he pushed it out of the bar. He didn't. It's just a double save. But yeah. Clear that first defender, put the ball in the box, and see what happens. That's my final note. Joe Lowry, 
thank you so much for taking all the time today to talk to me in the various media, the various forms as we have about the USA's 2-0 loss to Canada. Congratulations, Canada. Joe, thanks again. Right back at you, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for listening. We hope it hasn't been too painful. I assure you watching that game a second time was plenty painful for everybody involved. (laughs) And with that, we will talk to you all very, very soon.